I started to wonder if like something was wrong with me and I often felt like I would be better off as a boy. And social media introduced this idea that I could that I could be a boy. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, January 11th. I'm Virginia Allen, and that was former trans kid Chloe Cole. Chloe began telling her friends and family that she was a boy when she was 12 years old after she was introduced to gender identity ideology through social media. She started taking testosterone and puberty blockers at 13 and had a double mastectomy at 15. At 16, she detransitioned. Chloe joins me on the show today to share her powerful story of how she got caught up in the transgender movement, how she found her way out, and why she's traveling across America at the age of 18 to share her story in hopes of helping other young people from going down the same path that she did. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. Did you know that under Biden, our military is dangerously weak? So weak that we're not ready if China, Russia, or Iran attacks. We explain why and how to fix it in our 2023 Index of U.S. Military Strength, a comprehensive deep dive on the readiness of our nation to face threats and complete its mission in today's world. Learn more at heritage.org military. It is my honor today to welcome to the show former trans kid, Chloe Cole. Chloe, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Chloe, you're 18 years old. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Central Valley, California. Okay. And do you remember, you know, as we're jumping in, talking about your story, your life, this whole process in the transgender movement, do you remember the first time that you heard that word transgender or started to think, maybe that's me, maybe I identify as someone who's male? I mean, the first time I heard the word, I must have been like eight or nine. I just like overheard it from the adults, but I never really, I never really thought about it because like I was just, I was just a kid and I wasn't really, yeah, I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until I was about 11 and I started using social media that I started to learn more about it and start to like kind of apply that information to myself and wonder about like my identity and things like that. Okay. So it was through social media, you kind of start questioning mm-hmm. your own identity what what were you feeling at that point when you were you know 11 12 13 you're scrolling through social media and you're starting to kind of think about gender identity yeah I mean I would say before that I was already kind of vulnerable because you know growing up I'm it actually turns out that I'm on the the spectrum but I didn't get a proper diagnosis until I basically wasn't a kid anymore but yeah. um my parents struggled a lot with, uh, with they're basically they constantly at odds with like my school, my physicians. Yeah. You know, I at school, um, I was getting bullied a lot from a young age, and um, I tended to struggle in my classes and with socialization. I mean, in fourth grade, I finally managed to make a group of friends, and that was kind of the first time that I ever really felt, I guess you'd say included with my peers but Mm -hmm. then I had to move schools pretty quickly after that and I was basically back at square one and my my second the second elementary middle school that I went to um there was a lot of favoritism among students and I was not one of the favored students um I was actually getting mistreated by both students and staff Mm. and so 
I was pretty lonely and I turned to the internet and I got my first phone when I was 11 and um cuz cuz I didn't I don't it was it was quite difficult for me to make friends and yeah. um you know my parent my parents tried to um get me diagnosed for for autism because my a lot of my teachers would tell them that they they noticed that I had some pretty distinct signs of being on the spectrum mm-hmm. but when they tried to get me diagnosed the physician just told them like oh no she's she's too smart to be autistic mm. like there's there's no way she's autistic and mm. when they tried to get a second opinion my mental my my healthcare provider just said no and then they got me a diagnosis for ADHD instead and then they started medicating me at 10 so when i started using social media at 10 you know by the no 11 at, by that point in time i was um Started, I, I had some, some body image issues. You know, I was kind of a tomboy mm. from a young age, and yeah. I wasn't very developed, especially not in my chest area, but I did have slightly larger shoulders. I did have a bit more muscle in my body from being a little bit more on the athletic side. Yeah. And I liked having my hair short, but I often felt like I couldn't match up to other girls in terms of appearance, and I started to, you know, I, I, I had difficulty socializing with them yeah. and maintaining friendships with them. And so I started to wonder if, like, something was wrong with me. And I often felt like I would be better off as a boy. Okay. And social media introduced this idea that I could, that I could be a boy. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the feminist content I was seeing alongside the LGBT content that I was exposed to um, painted a very negative picture of being a woman, being feminine. Um, I was actually, despite being a tomboy, I was actually... I, I had a feminine side, <laughs> but um, I was ashamed of it because a lot of cartoons and um, other children's content I would consume growing up kind of was focused on boys, and okay. it kind of portrayed, like, uh, like girls, and especially, like, feminine girls as stupid and not yeah. really contributing anything to the story. Yeah. And just, just being a nuisance, and I wanted, I wanted to be something more than that, you know? Absolutely. But um, I also... From other women and girls growing up, I would often hear about the negative parts of the female experience, like how painful periods and childbirth and mm-hmm. pregnancy and menopause are. And nobody ever really talked about all the good things that come with those things. Yeah. And, I mean, naturally, hearing all that, all, hearing all those things about growing from a girl into a woman made mm-hmm. me not want to do that. Yeah. Um, so- I also hit puberty from a young age, so okay. I was dealing with it. It kind of just like hit me full force. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I would. A lot of my my peers and sometimes even adults would make some really uncomfortable comments about my body, and I really wanted it was something that I really just wanted to escape. Hmm. And like I said, um, the LGBT and especially the trans and queer content that I was that I was seeing taught me that I didn't have to be a girl. I didn't have to deal with any of this. Hmm. I could just. I could have a way out and I mean learning about this and learn, learning about this kind of gave me like a sense of relief because mm. it was like there was all these things that I thought was wrong with me and it all finally made sense after I learned about this mm. and it was I thought it was the answer so yeah you know I started uh, before I decided that I was actually a boy I, you know, I kind of experimented with certain labels. I was like, maybe I'm bisexual or bigender or genderless. 
and then eventually it just became I'm I'm not a girl at all. I'm just I'm just a boy. And, and I started. How old were you when you started saying I'm a boy? I was twelve. You were twelve. Um, okay. I started cutting my hair shorter and wearing more boys' clothes. And uh, I told my told some friends at school about this, and some friends online, some of my some of my siblings, and eventually I um, I decided to come out to my parents because I decided that I wanted to medically transition and I knew that I would have to get them on board with that in order for that to happen. Um, you know, they they were pretty surprised they knew like I was I was a tomboy, but they couldn't I don't think any parent could really foresee that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Their their kid saying that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But they they wanted to support me, but they're also they're also pretty cautious. They didn't understand why I was pushing so much for medically transitioning um, until after I got the, the gender dysphoria diagnosis okay. when the somebody on my medical team had told them that um, they, they never they never presented any options other than transitioning. Okay. And um, the doctors they, didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. They um, when my when my dad asked, he he asked um, what the regret rate looked like, mm-hmm. and they gave him a figure of around one to two percent, if not less. Okay. And they never talked about what would happen if I were to regret my tra- transition and go back on that decision. And they told them that if I wasn't affirmed in my identity and allowed to transition as I wanted, then I would be at risk of suicide. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty much coerced into allowing this to happen. Okay. So uh, you start taking a lot of different medicines, puberty blockers. Um, then it was at 15 that you had a double mastectomy, correct? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember what was kind of going through your head when you're coming out of surgery, you realize, okay, I've just had a double mastectomy. What were you feeling? I felt great, actually. I was... Okay. At the time, I was actually quite happy. Um, you know, I thought of myself to generally be a boy, despite being in a female body. Um, the justification was that I had a male gender identity that didn't match my body, mm-hmm. and I thought that this meant that I had um, the brain of the opposite sex. This mm-hmm. is. Um, Part of a theory called the brain sex theory, which has been disproven, but um, you know, not not only that, not only did I want to look like the boys my age because I thought I was one, but um, I also had been using um, a compression device called a binder to flatten the appearance of my breasts for about two years before my mastectomy, and. It was tiring. I I got really sick of it quick. Um, you know, I would wear this thing for about eight to twelve hours a day, sometimes, and I would I would wear it basically whenever I was out of the house or whenever mm-hmm. we had guests over, and you know I I would be I'd wear it while I was like on a run or working out or swimming or um, yeah you know sometimes I'd be walking home from school and and like. 110 degrees in this thing. Gosh, yeah, sounds so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it was. I wanted to be free of it. Yeah. But I also had um, 
this never really went addressed. Um, partly because I had a lot of shame around it, but I also had been, um, I was sexually assaulted in eighth grade. Um, I had been groped by a male classmate who um, had been bullying me for over the course of that school year. And I kind of just brushed it off in my head because this, this was when I was early in my transition. So I was like, well, I'm supposed to be a guy and it's just, it's just boys being boys. So I should just be a man about it and not, not, not complain about it, not really bother with it. And I knew that even if it did really bother me, I wouldn't be able to speak out anyways because school would have definitely given the kid a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And I knew that if he came back from school after that, he could have done something worse. And okay. so I couldn't really speak out on it. And I didn't really realize just how much it affected me. Yeah. Um, were you talking to any counselors or anything? Like when <clears throat> you were saying, I think I'm a man, I mean, were people asking you questions? Like, have you ever experienced sexual assault or anything like that? Um, I can't really remember that far back, okay. but that happened actually after I, I started, started, yeah, okay. medically transitioning. Okay, okay. So what happened? And I also, okay. it's, it's also important to note that I didn't recognize it as sexual assault because yeah. I, you know, I was thinking of myself as a boy, okay. as it just being like a, like boys being boys type thing. Yeah. So in, in a lot of ways, I mean, this is just one, one of many ways that I wasn't really mentally competent enough to go through this kind of thing. You were a child. Exactly. Yeah. What made you then at 16 say, I made a mistake. I I don't want to be a boy. I'm a girl. Um, there were a few factors. After my mastectomy, I started to, I wouldn't say I realized that the, the regret set in very quickly. It took uh, nearly a year. Okay. But I started to miss being feminine, um, being able to look pretty and wear makeup and present myself in such a way. And um, in secret, I would actually buy women's clothes and wear some of my my old girls' clothes, just whenever nobody was was home and I would I was alone. Mm-hmm. I was I was pretty ashamed about this because by this point in time, I was already medically transitioning for so long and I didn't have breasts anymore. I didn't really look like a woman. So it was something that I just kept to myself for a while, but these feelings just kept building up and it got worse. And I just assumed that it was part of the post-op period, like you're gonna experience some depression, but it didn't get any better. Yeah. Um, about a year after my surgery, I started taking class on psychology in my junior year. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the chapters was focused on um, child development and parenting. And I learned that breastfeeding is not only that, but it also plays a role in the bond between mother and child. Mm-hmm. And that bond um, goes on to affect that child's later cognitive and emotional and social functioning. And upon reading this, I felt like, a monster. I felt like mm-hmm. I realized that I took something not only from myself, but also potentially from my future children. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when the realization really hit that I shouldn't have been allowed to go through this. I mean, not only that, but also the lessons about um, like like um, cognitive and emotional development in kids and teenagers um, made me realize that I 
at an age where I was naturally, where everybody really naturally is prone to making some pretty rash decisions, I was allowed to make one that was permanent yeah. under the guidance of adults, medical yeah. professionals. Yeah. And um, a few weeks later, I decided to stop transitioning entirely. It was just, it was too much for me. And I knew that I couldn't keep lying to myself. And I went cold turkey off of testosterone. Um, and the school year that followed was really tough. Yeah, because what happened among your friends and um, the community that had been supporting you and and really championing you in in the transition um, were they supportive of you saying, "Hey, I'm I'm no longer transgender." No, um, I was getting attacked online actually. Um, by this point in time, um, COVID hit, and so all the quarantine laws in my state were pretty pretty strict. Um, my relationships at school suffered because of it, and I was mostly online by that point in time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my support system was people online. And as soon as I started talking about like my transition, my transition regret, I started getting harassed a lot. And um, even just bringing up that I stopped transitioning, and like trying, there are instances when I would try to like connect with with um, trans women because they were. You know, they had, a lot of them had, they were, they already went through puberty. They mm-hmm. had, like, masculine features, but they were trying to present themselves as women and trying to adjust socially into the role of a woman. And so I felt like I could relate to them that way, and mm-hmm. I often tried to make friends with them, but I would get shut down. They would basically tell me to just shut up and stop interacting with them oh. and that I was making them uncomfortable. I got that a lot, actually. I would, a lot of people told me that by talking about, my experiences and how transitioning harmed me. I was harming a larger community of people who would benefit from transition and that I would scare them off from getting their, they call it life-saving care. Mm. <laughs> um, and I did, I, didn't, I did give in to the mob for a little bit, but I also started um, doing some research on detransitioning and I was in some communities online of other people who were in my situation um and i realized that what the information that i was given not only by the medical professionals and like all the all the stuff i was seeing online but also from other transgender people was all just crap basically just just made up and that i was basically that that i was that i was being lied to and I realized that I couldn't stop speaking about it. Like somebody, I, 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 w- I, was, I was talking to a lot of adults who had stopped transitioning, but I knew that there, have, there has to be a lot more kids who are mm-hmm. in my situation. And I think that's really the biggest thing that prompted me to start speaking up again. Um, and so I did. I started becoming more vocal about my experiences and how my, um, how my views have been challenged and trying to challenge other people's views online um and i lost a lot of friends both online and from school um by the by this point in time i also wasn't the most emotionally stable and it did impact a lot of my my um my interpersonal relationships um 
But I basically spent my senior year alone because I didn't really have any friends at school. I was kind of a freak. I, 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 looked, I looked like a boy by that point in time. I, I still had some pretty rough features, but I was, you know, I was growing my hair out, wearing, presenting myself femininely. And there was, I guess you could say, kind of an incongruence in my appearance. And it was very obvious and I got picked on for it sometimes. And um, it really did suck, but I managed to find new friends um, outside of school and um, reconnect a little bit with my family members. And the support that I've been getting from, from them has really been what's keeping me going. That's awesome. That's huge to have that support. Chloe, looking back, is there something that you think, uh, whether it was a counselor or doctor, a parent, some, some role model in your life could have said to you or something they could have done um, that would have kept you from making that decision to start on hormones, to get a double mastectomy, to go on that full path of walking, uh, walking towards, quote unquote, becoming a man? It's hard to say because I was so stubborn, hmm. especially towards the beginning and middle of my transition. But, um, you know, recently I had an interview with um, with Jordan B. Peterson, and it didn't really feel like an interview. It felt like <laughs> I was... He's pretty like great at what he session. does. <laughs> I feel like if I had a psychologist like him back then, yeah. none of this would have happened. Wow. None of it. Wow. That's pretty incredible. He's pretty amazing. So. There, we need more people like him out there. Yeah. What What was it about the way that he talked with you and the questions that he asked that can have you say today, yeah. if I had someone like him in my life, I, I wouldn't have transitioned? Yeah. His, he probed pretty deep, and he was also – he was very informative. Hmm. I that, that was one of the first interviews where I really – I really feel like I, I learned something even. Wow. That's cool. That's really yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> well, now you're on this wild road of advocacy and you're speaking out and you're sharing your story and you're even sharing your story with leaders in Congress. What ultimately is the end goal of all of this advocacy, of sharing your story, of being willing to be so vulnerable? Um, well, I really want to stop transitioning from happening in children, in minors, and I want to reform in the affirmative care system and how we treat um, people with people who present with gender dysphoria or express a desire to transition to the opposite sex. Because really, the model right now is very one size fits all, and it doesn't take cases like mine into account. Um, I mean, a lot of people who are trans transgender or dysphoric have some sort of comorbid condition either alongside their, their dysphoria or possibly even having led to the development of their dysphoria. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, every young transgender person that I know personally has either been sexually assaulted or they have um, some sort of family trauma or they're on the spectrum, they have ADHD or depression. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's never... None of that is ever really taken into account. And I feel like that's something you have to address before you allow somebody to make a life-changing decision. Yeah. And with that, one of the actions that you've decided to take is to file a lawsuit against some of those people, some of those doctors who you feel like should have been giving you 
a bigger picture of what yes. was happening. Talk just a little bit about that, what's happening there. Um, yeah, so in, in November, we, I, my, my team sent out a letter of intent to sue um, addressed to my surgeon, my gender specialist who referred me to that surgeon, um, my endocrinologist who got me on hormones, and then the hospital that did it, and Kaiser as a whole. Okay. Um, we're still in the 90-day period, so not really any updates there, but okay. we're starting to near the end of it. We'll wait and see what happens there. We'll definitely be following that. Chloe, for those that want to follow your story, that want to keep up with your work, that want to support your work, how can they do that? So I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, my username is C-H-O-O-C-O-L-E. Awesome. You can also just search for Chloe Cole in Google, and yeah. a lot comes up. When you I'm also I'm also active on um, on Instagram. Awesome. And um, and YouTube. I'm not nearly as active as I should be on those platforms, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we can only give so much time to social media. So, but Chloe, thank you. Really appreciate your willingness to share your story, your vulnerability. It takes an insane amount of courage. You're 18, and you're doing what. Most people at any age would be terrified to do. So thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, and know that we're we're all from the Daily Signal team, we're all cheering for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today and listening to the conversation with Chloe Cole. If you want to follow Chloe again across social media platforms, you can do so just for searching for Chloe Cole. And if you are a parent who is looking for resources, who's looking for support, maybe you have concerns about your child being introduced to gender identity ideology, two great resources to check out are Our Duty, the organization Our Duty, uh, or The Changed Movement. These are both phenomenal organizations that uh, we've had on the podcast and offer great resources. And if you haven't had a chance before, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, if you've never done so, please take a moment to leave The Daily Signal a rating and review wherever you like to listen. We love hearing your feedback. All right, we'll have a great rest of your day and we'll see you right back here at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.